when they, each of them, say it's not about me, that I submit myself to this new entity, which is a God, a husband, and a wife, a trinity. Okay? Another trinity, another union of three. God is asking of them is impossible, but what God is offering to them is more, more, more glorious than anything that could be asked. everyone and welcome to the well here at STSA. We are wrapping up a three-week series that we have been talking about everyone's favorite subject in the whole wide world, which is marriage. But we're not looking at marriage from a perspective that you may have heard about it before. What we're doing is we're tackling the subject of marriage from our Orthodox wedding ceremony. We're seeing what lessons that we can learn based on the rituals and the readings and the prayers given to us from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And if you haven't, if you missed any of the parts of the series so far, you can always go to our website, stsa.church, and you click on the well there and you'll be able to catch up on anything that you have missed. Just as a quick recap, we learned our first two weeks that a wedding isn't actually just a wedding. A wedding is like the big umbrella, but we saw that every wedding actually begins with a funeral. And we said that there's no such thing as a wedding without a funeral. And if you went into marriage without going through your funeral, you're probably going to struggle because marriage is not about me. Marriage is about me dying so that I can get to the second thing that wedding is all about. Wedding is a birth. Okay, wedding is a death. And that's, we saw that with the red ribbon. We talked about that red ribbon that we tie around ourselves is a symbol of ourselves dying. But the goal isn't just to die for the sake of dying. The goal is to die to myself, my selfishness, my ego, my pride, whatever it may be. So that way I can be born to a new entity. Okay, and we said that every wedding is a birth. It is a birth of a new trinity between God, man, and woman. And what we agreed last week, as Jesus told us, is that what God has joined together let not man separate. And we agreed that man, it's not that man shouldn't separate what God has joined together. It's that man cannot separate what God has joined together. When God joins, no man can separate. Even though he may try and a court may tell him he can, man cannot unglue what God has glued. Man cannot undo what God has dude. <laughs> man cannot undo. There's no button that God pushes and man can hit undo on that button. Man cannot hit undo on anything God has ever done. And we saw that last week. And today, we're going to get to the third and final component, at least for our series, because this could be a 20-week series if I wanted, because there's so much depth. We're going to talk about marriage, not just about funeral, not just about birth, but every marriage is also a mission, and it's a specific type of mission. <laughs> that kind of mission, but close, okay? It actually is a mission that on the surface seems like mission impossible, but what we're going to talk about today is that the mission of marriage isn't as impossible, even though it is impossible, isn't as impossible as we may think it is, and maybe the reason why we're saying it's impossible is because we are not playing by the right set of rules. Take a step back. Last week, we talked at the verse in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus said, 
all about marriage. And Jesus said, I don't like divorce. And he said, you know, back in the old days, Moses allowed divorce, but that was never my plan because what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the people said, no, but we want to, the, the men would say, you know, we want to be able to divorce our wives and Moses let us. And why can't, why wouldn't you let us? And Jesus said, no, what God joined, no undo on what I do. And the response to Jesus from the people who heard his words, the religious people was, and I quote, if such is the case, it is better for a man not to marry. If truly I cannot return my wife and get a new one, if I really can't push undo on this marriage thing, then truly, that's what they said. And they weren't being funny. They, weren't, they were just being honest and saying, really, this thing is for life and it's forever and I can't undo it. Then it is better for a man not to get married. And we laugh and we snicker at that. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of us, that has invaded our minds. This is why the mean age for marriage continues to get older and older and older and older and older because more and more people are looking at marriage as the end, as the end of the fun, as the end of the road. I heard people as true, people really say stuff like this and I don't blame them. They say, why should I get married and be miserable? I'd rather be lonely than miserable, which is a good existential question, which is worse to be lonely or miserable, okay? So... Several people have decided that being lonely, I know what to do, but I'd rather be lonely than be miserable. Well, what I want to say to you is I want you neither lonely nor miserable. And is there a way that you can be married and not be miserable? Or is marriage truly enjoy the honeymoon, have a great time during the reception, party hardy, because really after that, it all goes downhill after that. Is there a way to avoid the misery from this mission, which sometimes seems like mission impossible? I say the answer is yes. And what we are going to do today is we are going to look at the most unpopular part of the wedding ceremony. Well, I should say it's popular for all the wrong reasons. The, the, let's say it this way, the least listened to part, which is we are going to look at the instructions that are given to the bride and the groom at the very end of the ceremony. And I say instructions, I'll go air quotes on the instructions because there's no such thing as instructions. There's only commandments, but instructions is a little more easy. Okay, we'll say instructions. But God never gave the 10 instructions or the 10 suggestions. He gave 10 commandments. God doesn't give instructions. God gives commandments. And what I want, okay, we're going to look at these commandments and we're going to see what they mean. Okay, this is at the very end of the wedding ceremony. All the prayers have been done. We're about to ship them off to the reception and only God knows what's awaiting them after that. And we're about to send them out the door and we say, hold on, before you go, here's the instructions of how this marriage thing works. Because I told you, you have to die. And then I give you this new life. But I have to tell you how this new life works. I have to tell you how the new life works because I can't just give it to you and say, good luck figuring it out. So the first week was funeral, second week, new life. And now is how does life work in that new birth, in that new entity that I'm part of? We'll see these instructions. We'll read the one, we'll read them all together and then we'll go back and break them down, okay? We'll start with the son, with the, 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 the groom, okay? My blessed son and insert your name. This is what the priest says. My blessed son name. May the grace of the Holy Spirit strengthen you to take unto yourself your wife in purity of heart and in sincerity. Do all that is good for her. You can circle the word all. Have compassion on her and always, circle the word always again, and always hasten to do that which will gladden her heart. Take care of her as her parents did in love and in humility, remembering that you have been crowned with heavenly crowns and confirmed by the grace of God. Remember that if you fulfill the divine commandments which urge you to look after your wife, the Lord will bless you in all that you do because his blessing is enjoyed by those who live in harmony. He will grant you blessed children and a long and peaceful life. He will bless you in this life and the hereafter. Okay? We'll kind of, we'll leave that, put it on hold. Let's read the, the bride one and then we'll go back and, and try to break it down here. The bride is usually where people start to snicker. Okay? 
And you, blessed daughter and happy bride, you have heard what was commanded of your husband. So you must honor and respect him. Do not disagree with him, but increase, increase your obedience to him over what was commanded many times. This is usually where we hear, ha, 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 ha. For you are now alone with him, and he is responsible for you instead of your parents. So you must receive him with joy and cheer. Do not frown in his face. Observe all your obligations to him and fear God in all that you do. Because God the Most High instructed you to submit to him and commanded you to obey him as you obey your parents. So obey him as our mother Sarah was obedient to our father Abraham and used to address him, my Lord. If you haven't snickered by this point, you're in a full laugh at this time when you hear this. Thus God looked upon her obedience to him, blessed her, gave her Isaac in her old age, made her offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. So if you observe what we instructed you to do and follow all commandments, the Lord will support you and provide for your livelihood. The blessings will descend upon your house. He will grant you blessed children who will fill your heart with joy. We snicker, we laugh, but I'll be honest with you now, I'm not joking. This part really upsets me, actually, when people do that in the wedding. And I am very easygoing, okay? And people do the clapping and the woo 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 and that stuff doesn't bother me. But this bothers me. Because it bothers me because of not necessarily what the people are thinking, but the mindset behind it. Easy to say, old-fashioned, cultural, biased against women, whatever it may be. But it's very dangerous, it's very dangerous to have the mindset that I, who have never been married, know how marriage is supposed to work. And the church, which has been doing marriage for thousands of years, has no idea what it's doing. Because I heard Dr. Phil, or I watch Oprah, or I know my cousin, he gave me good advice, and he's uh, halfway on his, uh, his third marriage right now. It is very dangerous. Yes, sometimes the language is difficult to comprehend. But let's not confuse language with principles. And sometimes the language, yes, may be slightly outdated. The language needs to be understood in a different way because everything is context. But let's not confuse language with principles because principles and truth is not cultural. It is eternal. And it is not in, in, a, in, a, in a context of time. And it's dangerous for us to take the timeless principles that God teaches us in the church and snicker them off as doesn't apply in 2016. Or ha ha ha, this will never work. Or yeah, good try. That's a dangerous concept which I don't want us to do. That's what the world does. Okay, that's the swimming lessons from a camel which we've been talking about. That's when we are foolish enough to take advice from a world that has failed at marriage and we allow them to advise us and the church which is telling us what marriages should be, we laugh at them as if they have no idea what they're doing because they contradict a world that has proven time and time and time again that they have failed whole idea of truth being eternal. If you're going to kill yourself by jumping, if jumping off the Empire State Building will kill you in 1896, it'll probably kill you in, two, in 1996, and it'll probably kill you in 2006. The principle of jumping off a building, no matter what context it's given, is most likely going to cause you damage because the truth is the human beings cannot fly. And that will never change. And the same is true when it comes to marriage. And what we're going to look at today based on these commandments slash instructions is what are the roles, the distinct roles that God has given to men and women in marriage? And I'll tell you right off the bat, this goes against what our culture teaches us. This goes against what our culture teaches us because our culture wants to prove and say over and over again that there's no difference. There's no distinction. And we have this idea of equality and sameness being the same. That if we have to be fair and men are not better than women and everyone is the same and everyone can do whatever they want. There's no, there's no, the idea of being the same, being fair, okay, is an idea, anyone who's a parent knows that you have to be fair to your children, it doesn't mean you treat them exactly the same. 
Same when it comes in the church. The idea that there is no distinction between man and women is simply false. Because the truth is, from the very beginning, God created male and female. He didn't create doctor and lawyer. He didn't create rich and poor. He didn't create Skins fans and Cowboys fans. He created male and female. Which means that the core of your identity, the core of our identity, is my maleness or my femaleness. And my specific role in life as well as in marriage specifically. Okay, but I'm saying even beyond that. My maleness or my femaleness is part of me. And to just try to blur the lines and say, there's no difference between male and female. They're all pretty much the same. That's the root of a lot of problems in the world today, in the world of marriage. Now, with that said, don't think that I'm saying like, the roles are to cook and to clean. And the roles to make, I'm not, I'm not talking about roles in that sense. I'm talking about in a godly way, what is the roles of a man and a woman inside a marriage? I'm not making any political statements. I'm not saying anything about, uh, 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 again, not trying to get in anyone's business with any of this stuff. I'm trying to say principles that have been proven since the beginning of time. God has instructed us, and it's my hypothesis that your satisfaction in marriage, your satisfaction in marriage will ultimately be linked to your ability to understand God's role for you in marriage. So you can snicker, you can laugh, and you can disregard but the proof is in the pudding. And those who ignore the ways of God will never find satisfaction that they're looking for. And those who submit to God's commandments will see it. So before we just jump in and say these are cultural, let's take a step back and say, I don't get this. I don't get why the woman has to submit. I don't get why the woman has to say, my Lord, why didn't he say that? I don't get men, sometimes they think the men don't complain either. Men don't say, why do I always have to make her happy? I always have to gladden her heart. How come she didn't have to gladden my heart? Before we jump in and say the church doesn't know what it's talking about, let's take a step back. And let's see, what's the, what's the root of this? Where do these commands come from? Do the churches make them up out of thin air? Is there a biblical basis for them? Absolutely. Here, we're going to look at two passages. There's two passages that we get the, the commands to the bride and the groom, to the husband and the wife, from Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. Okay? Each of them wrote a piece to the wives and a piece to the husband. So I'm going to kind of break it down. We'll look at the husbands both and then the wives, or the wives both, and then the husbands both. So I'm taking the piece from Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, and then see the parallel part. So this is for the wives, is what St. Saint, uh, Saint Paul says in Ephesians 5. First thing you see, that word that's highlighted is that word that we didn't like from the commands, but we see the same word there. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Key word there is you see the word submit, Okay. Well, I didn't say what submit means. Okay, so let's agree. The principle of submit is there. Let's, we have to understand what does submit mean, and we're going to see that in a second, but we'll see it from, from Peter. St. Paul wrote to the wives a very short passage. St. Peter wrote a much longer passage to the wives. It says, wives, likewise, be submissive. Same word, to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are afraid with any terror. Okay? Not, am I going to explain anything yet? I'm just showing it's biblical basis. I didn't explain yet. That's the wives. Now the husbands. 
Husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And St. Peter brings us home here, one verse. Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. First thing you notice, St. Paul wrote a little piece to the ladies and a lot to the men. St. Peter wrote a lot to the ladies and a little piece to the men. You know why? Because Peter was married. <laughs> so Peter, his verse to the husband's like, hey, just do this, that's fine, you're fine. But the wives, sit down, okay? No, I'm just joking, just joking, just joking. I'm walking on eggshells up here today, okay? So when I get a little nervous, I may joke around a little bit. The idea, let's start with the ladies. The idea, the idea that the church or Christianity is biased against women and that the marriage roles are biased against women is 100% shot down and destroyed by what we just read. Anyone who would make the argument that the Bible, the biblical authors, and the church is opposed to what is opposed to women, is biased towards men, is neglecting to read everything that we just read right now. You know why? Because I just read some commands to a husband, and I read such words. Let's go back right here. I read words like love your wives, give yourself for your wife. I read nourish your wife, cherish your wife. I read being heirs together. You have to understand the context in which these words were written. These words were written in first century. In the first century in the Roman Empire, what was the value, forgive me, I'm not saying this today, but I'm saying what was the value of women in the first century Roman Empire to the people who are reading these words? Were they seen as equal to men? Were they seen as love of your life and cherish and things like that? They were seen, forgive me, I don't mean this in a bad way, they were seen as property oftentimes. And they were seen as a commodity. And they were seen as something not necessarily to have and to hold for better or for worse or richer or poor. They were seen just something to get you through life and to fulfill your needs and just a person that you get right there. Especially St. Paul is writing to Ephesus, the Ephesians in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus especially was one of the most sexually uh, like saturated societies consumed by sex. They used to worship the goddess Diana or Artemis. Okay, the goddess Diana was known as the goddess of love and sex and her statue, the goddess uh, of, of the city of Ephesus, her statue was a woman with multiple breasts. Okay, and she was very erotic. And the way you used to worship this goddess in this city was that you would come to the temple and you would have sex with the temple prostitutes. That was how you worshiped. So it was like, hey, come to church with me on Sunday. Like friends and family, they had a whole different twist. Okay. And that's the audience that St. Paul is saying, you love your wife. You give yourself for your wife. You cherish your wife. Your wife is the heir together with you. Like there's a Greek writer, his name is Demosthenes, who describes the common mentality of first century Roman empire towards women. He said this. He said, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for day-to-day -day needs of the body, and wives in order to produce children legitimately and have trustworthy guardian of homes. That's how they looked at women. You had your mistress for pleasure, you had your concubine for day-to-day -day needs, and then a wife because you needed a legal guardian of your children. So you chose as a wife 
more of like a a a a a living like an au pair, like a living nanny, like the responsible one. But you don't love her, you don't cherish her. She's not an heir to get like you're the heir, and she's your employee. She's your servant. And St. Paul says, love them, cherish them, air together with them. Even, by the way, when it says there that weaker vessel, okay, we misinterpret that one. Okay, we take that in a derogatory, even though it meant to the exact opposite. Weaker vessel was not meant to say like lesser human being. It's saying physically she's not as strong as you. So you be gentle with her. And you don't bully her. And you don't yell at her because your voice is louder. Because she's just as important as you are. And the first century New Testament writers, St. Paul and St. Peter, fought for the rights of women. That's why anyone says Christianity is against women. Doesn't understand that Christianity was the only place in the first century. The only place that women had rights in the first century was in the church. The only place in the first century where a slave could sit next to his master was in church. That a woman and a man were equal was in church. That rich and poor meant nothing was in church. Outside, everything else was class system. But inside church was the only place that it wasn't. So therefore... Therefore, follow me on this one. Maybe the word submit isn't as derogatory towards women as we've been led to believe. Maybe the Bible is not as pro-men as we've been led to believe. I haven't explained what submit means. We're going to look at that in a second. But I'm just saying, I look at the overall and I see Christianity is not against women. St. Paul is not against women. St. Peter is not against women. They are pro-women, but they still said submit. So maybe you can be pro-women and still say submit. Maybe saying submit doesn't mean to denigrate a woman or that a woman is, is a subservient being. Maybe there's something deeper that we haven't yet understood, and that's why we're not going to take swimming lessons from camels. We're going to go and we're going to say, hey, what does this mean? Before we jump in to say, it doesn't mean anything to me. What I want to say is these commands, okay, these commands that were given in the first century took marriage from basically a legal entity that meant nothing, had nothing to do with love, had nothing to do with romance, had nothing to do with anything, had nothing to do with co-heirs, had nothing to do with any of the stuff we've been talking about. And they turned marriage upside down. It took marriage 180, de 180 degrees when people understood these principles. And maybe if we understood them, they can turn marriage in our society today too. Maybe if we understood these principles, then maybe what the, the view towards marriage can shift 180 degrees as well, both in our own and in the world outside us, okay? So with that, we'll jump in, and we'll go ladies first. We'll start with the ladies. We'll get to the men. Don't worry, ladies. We'll get to the men. Ladies, your role in marriage is submit as church to Christ. Let me duck so no one hits me. Okay. All good? Okay, very good. Not my words. Words of St. Paul and St. Peter. So we heard it in the church commandments, and we said, nonsense. Then we went to the Bible, and we saw St. Peter write it. And we saw St. Paul write it. So we say, hey, wait a minute. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're right. Let's, let's try to understand what submit means because words change meaning over time. So I need to understand what does the word mean, but I'm not going to throw away the word. Okay? I have to keep the, the principle and understand what it means in today's context, but not just throw it away as something that doesn't apply to me. The word submit has gotten a bad reputation in the world today. And I will argue that it has gotten a bad reputation from people who don't understand what it really means. And as I've even beaten this dead horse, it's gotten a bad reputation from people who have failed at marriage. It's gotten a bad reputation from people who have not succeeded at marriage. You're not finding people succeed at marriage and saying that submit is bad. You're finding people fail at marriage and tell you that submit is bad. So there should be some logic right there in terms of how, how much advice you take from people who have failed. Just the other day, I was driving in the car and I was, I was flipping through the radio. So I have a... I have a weakness. 
my weakness. Okay, so usually when I'm in the in the car, I listen to like sports talk radio. Okay, but when I have like a long trip, okay, and I have to drive for a long time, then the sports talk will only get you so far. Then you pick up different stations from other cities. You lose everything. So I always go scan, and I'm looking for one thing. What am I looking for on the radio? 80s music. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's my weakness. Okay, 80s music is my weakness. And I hear all 80s weekend, boom, like I'm parked right there. I'm not moving from right there. And I'm listening to this radio station, and 80s music, most of it is love songs. Okay, so that's like my week. Okay, I'm like, I'm, but that's my thing. Okay, like I like 80s music. I like the 80s love song, Don't Stop Believing, like that. Like I'm, I'm all about that stuff. Okay, okay, sweet child of mine, like these kinds of these, this is my music. Okay, so I'm listening. And of course, when you're listening to these love songs over and over, what I discovered is I was listening to a love show. Okay, so it was like a show where this guy is like, you know, like he's got like the, the, the deep voice, like the Barry White kind of voice, okay? And he's like, you're on love talk, whatever it may be, okay? And people call in, they say their problems, and then he gives them advice, okay? So of course, this is fascinating for me as someone who gives advice a lot. I wanted to check out like, what's the competition like out there, okay? I was, blo I was boiling. My blood was boiling. He gave the worst advice. He gave the worst advice. Some lady called up, and this, and this, actually, before he gave the advice, before he gave the advice, he opened it up to other callers. Call in and give your advice. So you know nothing, and you're inviting people who know less than you to give advice. And some of the people said the dumbest things. And I, and I, I, I'm, I'm listening to this, and they're saying, you fight, and you don't let him talk to you that way, and you, and everything against this idea of submit. I want broke my heart because I know the poor people, the poor people who are listening to that, they got no chance at marriage. Because once you start to think that you know better than Bible, you got no chance. Our problem is we need to understand what does the word submit mean. First thing we see about submission. Submission is not a marriage word. Submission is a Christian word. And all of Christians are called to submit to one another in the fear of God. That's in Ephesians 5.21. I didn't put it up on the screen. But all Christianity is submission. All of Christianity. So the idea that submission is not just a marriage thing. Submit is what we should all do to one another. We prefer one another. We esteem one another. We honor one another. So idea of submit as being just a wife's thing, nonsense. Now within marriage, it's particularly the role of the wife, okay? But I want you to see it's a Christian concept beyond there. Does Christianity, I'm sorry, does submit in Christianity mean lesser? Does it mean subservient? Does it mean doormat? Does it mean weaker? Is it possible to be fully submissive and be strong? Yes. Can anyone give me an example? Jesus. Very good. For all of us, but specifically in marriage, Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, become, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Question. Was Jesus weak? Was Jesus weak? No. Was Jesus submissive? Yes. So submission and weakness don't equal each other. In fact, I would say that it took a lot more strength from Jesus to submit than it took to not submit. We think, ladies, that if I submit, he'll walk all over me. If I submit, that means I'm lower. If I submit, I need to fight for my place. Well, let me ask you a question. When Jesus submitted, being in the form of God, but he let go of that godness to come in the form of a servant. When Jesus submitted, did that lower his status with the Father? Did that lower his rank? Did he lose some of himself? 
The verse goes on. Therefore, therefore, because he submitted, therefore what? God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and earth, under the earth, that at every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Did Jesus lose his status by submitting? Or did he cement his status by submitting? Imagine, imagine if the Son of God, Jesus, didn't believe in submitting. and He believed in fight for your rights. Teach them a lesson. Why should I die? Holy Spirit doesn't do anything. Let him die. Imagine. You can't imagine it because it's against his nature. Well, let me tell you something. Ladies, this is specifically for the ladies. Ladies, you are never more like Christ. You are never more like Christ than when you are submitting. The most Christ-like thing you will do in marriage is a spirit of submission. Because that was the spirit that Christ had. That was the mind that Christ had. Not grudging, not forcing, but voluntary submission. And I still haven't defined submission, by the way. I haven't defined it yet. So don't, don't, don't look at me like that. I haven't defined it yet. But I want you to see that submission and Christ go hand in hand. And I won't harp on this point too much. You're never more like Christ when you submit. You're never less like Christ than when you don't submit. You're never more like somebody else when you don't submit. Who's the somebody else who is not very good at submission, who did not want to accept submission, who fought for his rights? Opposite of Christ. Satan. You can be Satan. Okay. I'm just going to stop the point. Let's go on to the next point. Right there. Okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. Ladies, when we don't submit, we lose the image of God that we were created in. We were created in the image of God, and that submission is part of that. And you're thinking to yourself, I would be happy to submit, but my husband's a jerk. We will get to your jerk husband in a little bit. And we have plenty to deal with him. But before we get there, understand what I'm saying submit means. I'm going to give you two definitions. This is my own made up, so don't, 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 don't go around and say this is the official definition. But based on the church Commandments. I'm going back to those church commandments. I see submit as two things. is honor and yield. Honor and yield. In the church commandments, we said, so you must honor and respect him. Do not disagree with him, but increase your obedience to him over what was commanded many times. I'm focusing on that phrase. Honor and respect and in this rough one, do not disagree with him. And all the men are like, yeah, I knew we should have watched what I wanted on TV. That's what I'm... Let's do one at a time, okay? Honor and respect, and then we'll get to the yield, which I'll talk about the do not disagree. Honor is the easy one. Honor we all understand, even if we don't do. Honor we understand, even if we don't necessarily, we're very good at it, but I want to say, I'm not going to talk about this one very much, but I just want to say, ladies, is that the way you speak about your husband, in front of him and behind him, in front of God, you are called to honor your husband in front of him and behind him. And if you had to choose one of the two to be more disrespectful, do it in front of him, not behind his back. Because just like you can tell, you can tell when the person talking to you doesn't really love you and they're saying unloving things about you behind your back. Your husband can tell and feel when you are not honoring him behind your back. And it is shameful. Ladies, some of it is shameful. Some of the stuff I hear people say about their husbands in a joking manner, to me that is shameful, and to me that embarrasses me, and it makes me want to leave the conversation. Won't dwell on it, because this we understand. But I'll just tell you this, that your husband may not hear it, but I guarantee you he feels that it's coming across. Honor and respect him. Number two, do not disagree with him. 
Do not disagree with him. Don't you know the dumb things that he says? Every week I tell you the dumbest thing that he says. He tell you no one dumber than my husband. Okay, he's dumb. We're gonna again. We're gonna get to him in a little bit. What does do not disagree with him mean? Does it mean he makes every choice? Like it's time for dinner, he chooses what we eat every night. Like we're gonna watch TV, he chooses the TV show. He chooses where we go. Does that mean like you can never disagree with him? I don't think that disagree the way we understand it is what it means. Let me put a different word. Do not be disagreeable. And is there a difference between disagreeing and being disagreeable? Absolutely. Other words for disagreeable would be argumentative. It would be a biblical word, quarrelsome. Let me show you two verses from the Bible and forgive me right now. I'm going to get to the guys. I promise you, I'm going to get to the guys. Okay, this is from the Bible. Solomon, the wise, says, a quarrelsome wife is like a dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. No expounding on that one, okay? Proverbs 25, 24. Better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Now, these are funny. And insert your own joke, okay? I just gave you material for lunch, okay? But the principle is that ladies, is that ladies. Here we see a, a stark contrast between godly marriage and worldly marriage. Godly marriage and worldly marriage. Worldly marriage is a power struggle. Fight for your rights. Don't let him get away with that. Teach him a lesson. You show him. That's worldly marriage. Godly marriage is yield. Is give space. Yield doesn't mean you run all over me. Yield doesn't, yield doesn't mean I'm a doormat. Yield means that I give you space. I let go of control. I stop resisting. Yield means that instead of competing with my husband to try to get my way, Instead of trying to manipulate him to do what I want, I'll take a step back. And I will trust his decision, even if it's not my decision. Instead of beating a dead horse on an issue that is over and done with, that I disagreed with, you know what? I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to yield. And I'm going to trust that God will do more with my submission than he would with my fighting. Because ultimately, in the end, submission to your husband is not submission to your husband. It's submission to God. And we do not submit. This is the biggest mistake. Ladies, I'm not telling you to submit to your husband because he's a great guy. I'm telling you to submit to your husband because God, the Most High, instructed you to do so. So in the end, we are submitting to God, and we're submitting to our husbands out of our submission to God. And not just to our husband because he's a great guy. Obviously, with all that said, some husbands are really hard to submit to. And I, I don't want to make light of that in any way. And I'm going to get to them in a, in a minute right here. So husbands, you're sitting there and you're saying amen. You're amen. You're taking notes. You're elbowing. Make it easier for her. Make godly decisions. You yourself model submission in your relationship with God. You every now and then crack open your Bible and hear some wisdom from God, not just from sports center. Like you can make it a lot easier for your wife to submit to you by being a godly man, a strong leader for your house. But ladies, that doesn't have anything to do with your role, okay? Your role, St. Peter said, that you would be beautiful. Ladies, your role is to be beautiful. Your role is to be beautiful. But what's beauty? It's the hidden beauty of the heart. The incorruptible beauty of a, I circled this one in my, in my prayers for, for my, my daughter, not my wife, because my daughter, but I want her to be beautiful in this way. I want her to know the true beauty is a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. That's your job, ladies, is you make yourselves beautiful with that quiet and peaceable and agreeable spirit. Okay, on the ladies? Now we turn to the men? Yeah, turn to the men. 
Okay, to the men. Well, actually, we're running late, so we don't have much time, so just keep up the good work, guys. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I want to get out of here alive. Okay, so anyone who thinks that men get off easy is not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Anyone who thinks that men got the easy path because they don't have the word submit is not reading because I will argue, maybe it's just me as a man, that men's job is harder. That men's role is more difficult. And men's job, I don't want, I'm not saying higher or lower, but I'm saying is more challenging and more impossible to do. And I'll tell you why right here. Let's read from Ephesians chapter five. Oh, the husband's job, love as Christ to the church. Okay, we'll get to, we'll explain that. Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. First thing, I'm going to go quickly here because there's a lot. First thing, husbands have a greater responsibility. Because husbands will not just be judged on themselves, but will also be judged on their family. So we are judged not just on our own state, but also to present our wives and children when they jump in there too, is to present them as well. And God will hold us accountable to the spiritual state, but not just spiritual, the mental state, the emotional state, the physical state of our wives and our children. So our responsibility, men, is a great one. And our task that I just said a minute ago, what did I say our task was? Is love as what? as Christ to the church. I beg your pardon? Love as? Love as Christ. See, this command would have been easy if it just said, husbands, love your wives. Oh yeah, I love her. She's the best. Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, what's her? Yeah, she's great. I love her. No, 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 sir. You love as Christ loved. Okay, how did Christ love? Oh, you mean Mr. Unconditional Love over there? Mr. Everlasting Love? Mr. No matter what you did to him, he loved. You cursed him, he loved you. You crucified him, he loved you more. No matter what you did to Christ, his love continued to grow and grow and grow. And there was never one second on anyone ever met him for one second that didn't feel fullness of love. Even the people he yelled at felt fullness of love. So husbands, your job is simple. You get to be submit to and you get this, but your task is to love as Christ loved the church. Good luck. Now, the first thing I'll say is that I painted the picture of loving as Christ as, the, loving as Christ as an impossibility. And in one sense, it is 100% impossible. You will never reach that level. But in another sense, it is possible because Christ would not command us to do something that we can never achieve. So while it is not easy, while it is not possible in a human sense, it is a lifelong quest that we will spend the rest of our lives to love. I will spend the rest of my life practicing and trying to love my wife as Christ loves me. And that is a never-ending journey. That's why, husbands, I'm going to go hard on you here for a second. Husbands, when I hear, she don't submit to me, she don't submit to me, and she don't respect me, I, I want to yell at you. I want to say, we are wasting your time? Like, you have a big mission in front of you to love her as Christ loves the church. Did you fulfill that? Because I don't have time to worry if she submit to me or not submit to me. I got a homework assignment, which is love her as Christ loves the church. And I ain't even close to done that. So why am I worrying about her submitting? That's not your job. It never said, husbands, make your wife submit to you. And it didn't say, wives, make your lives, make your husbands love you. It said, wives, you do your thing, submit. 
Husbands, you do your thing. You love as Christ loved the church. And until you get there, you keep your mouth shut. Until you get to that point, you keep your mouth shut. And you do your job and not worry about hurt. Now, what does love as Christ loved the church mean? Again, I'm going to give you two definitions. And this is just my own based on the commandments of the church. I'm going to say first, love equals sacrifice. You can give without loving, can't love without giving. We've heard that statement before. You can give without loving, you can't love without giving. There's no such thing as true love without sacrifice. The love of Christ for us wasn't that he sat on a throne in heaven and said, I love you. Don't kill one another. I love you. Don't forget to come to church on Sunday. I love you. He didn't just shout out commandments from heaven. He rolled up his sleeves. He got his hands dirty. And he came down and he took flesh. Stinky, smelly flesh. He came like us. Lived among us. Walked around among us. All for the sake of his beloved bride, which is us. Husbands, you say, I'd do anything for my wife. I'd die for my wife. I'd die for my wife. Okay, that's great. Would you turn off the TV for your wife? Would you do laundry for your wife? Would you pick up your underwear for your wife? Hmm? Would you be able to, what do you say? Would you, be, would you open the Bible with your wife? Would you stand and pray with your wife? Or I'd die for my wife. Cross the ocean for my wife. Climb the mountain. All stuff that never happens. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 when he talked about discipleship, he said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and carry his cross daily. Daily. So husbands, it's great that you want to die for your wife, but are you willing to die daily for your wife? Let me tell you what die daily for your wife means. I will tell this to my children, especially my son. I will tell him, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a man. What it means to be a man, I tell this to my son, Michael. I tell him, there's four of us and there's three Oreos. That's what it means to be a man. That's when you'll see who the true man is. And I say it jokingly, but I don't mean it jokingly. That's the truth. Is the man always does the sacrifice. Is the man is the one who says, okay, someone doesn't have an Oreo, okay, I'll be the one who has an Oreo. Someone doesn't get the Oreo, okay, I'll be the one not have my way. And a man who's not sacrificing has no right to open his mouth about submission. Has no right to open his mouth about submission. <clears throat> sacrifice is one. But you know what, husbands? It's more than just sacrifice. And the second word, like again, sacrifice, we understand it. We may not be good at it, but we kind of understand it. But this is the one that I think we overlook often, and the church does not overlook it. St. Paul did not overlook it, and the church did not overlook it. And ladies, if you, if you miss this, and you don't see this, then you think that the church is against you. You're missing out. Just... We are to cherish our wives. And I like that word cherish. St. Paul said no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church. Our love for our wives needs to be a cherishing love. Not a duty love, not an obligation love, not a like, okay, begrudging love. It needs to be the way God makes us feel. Does God make you feel guilty about him loving you? Like he's doing you a favor? Does God make you feel like you owe him now because he loves you? Or does he cherish us and say, you are the most important thing to me and you are my prized possession? There's a great story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The story may not seem like it fits here, but follow me here and I'll, and I'll explain how it connects. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 12 is after David had just committed his most heinous crime. David had committed adultery with the wife of another man and had that man killed. So David was at his lowest state right now. And God sent David a prophet, Nathan. And Nathan was to convict David of the sin which he had committed, of stealing another man's wife. And Nathan told him a little story which I think can teach us a lot of lessons. 2 Samuel chapter 12. There were two men in his city, one rich and the other poor. This is Nathan speaking to David. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ooh lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And they grew up together with him and with his children. and ate of his own food, drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for a man who had come to him. Rich man had many sheep. Poor man had one little sheep that he loved. He cherished it. It was like his own daughter. And the rich man had a guest coming and needed to kill a lamb. Instead of killing one of his own, he took that little lamb from that poor man. And he killed that lamb. King David hears that. And the king of Israel says, it says, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Why was David so angry at this story, which wasn't real, but he thought it was real? Why was David so angry? Why was David so incensed saying this man deserves to die? Back to this verse. Because you had a poor man who had nothing in life except one lamb. He bought that lamb, nourished that lamb. It grew up together with him and his children. I, I never had a lamb, okay? I never, most a goldfish that lasts a week or two. Like, I never had pets. But based on what this is saying, this guy really loved his lamb. He loved his little lamb. It says that it ate with him. That sounds disgusting. It says it drank with him. That sounds even more disgusting from his own cup. It says it lay in his bosom. It says it was like a daughter to him. Then along came another man who took this man's prized possession and mistreated him and abused him and said, ah, it doesn't have much value. The response is, that man should surely die. Gentlemen, that little lamb is your wife. That little lamb is your wife. Did you know that your wife is the most precious possession in the universe to her father in heaven? Regardless of her father here on earth, what you have in your possession, not possession in a bad or guilty way, you have in front of you a little lamb that God the Father bore. He loved her. He cared for her. He was there on the first day of kindergarten. He was there when she cried, when, when uh, you know, uh, little Joey, you know, pushed her down or whatever. He was there when she had her heart broken in high school by that idiot boy. He saw every tear she cried, and it broke his heart because he loved that little lamb. He loved that little lamb. And dads, if you have a daughter, you know what I'm talking about. Dads, if you have a daughter, you know what I'm talking about. 
your wife is the daughter of the king of the universe. And he, on your wedding day, took that beautiful lamb out of his hands and said, I give her to you. That's why in the Orthodox wedding, by the way, in the Orthodox wedding, something that some people do, and I'm not against it, but it's not 100% right. The dad doesn't give away the bride. I know, well, my dad will give my bride. That's fine. You can do it. That's a picture, but the dad doesn't give away the bride because you're not your dad's. The priest gives away the bride. That's the tradition that we've always had. It's the priest. At the hand of the priest, he has given her to you. The priest symbolizing Christ. The priest is the representative. He's the icon of Christ. It is Christ who has put your wife in your hands. Not your dad. Her dad. He entrusted her to you. He said to you, he looked you in the eye. He said, man, I give you the most precious thing to me. You always do what is good for her. You hasten to gladden her heart. You have compassion on her. You be gentle with her because you may be stronger than her, but I am stronger than you. And you will answer to me. And you will answer to me in a negative way, but you will answer to me in a positive way that the reward that I have for you if you take care of my lamb Dads, we know this. Someone who takes care of our little daughters, man, that guy have the universe from us. And I'm telling you that your wife is God's precious daughter. And you are not just to love her in a physical way. Sometimes we get this confused. That, yeah, I put food on the table, a roof over her head, buy her clothes. What's she want from me? What's she want? She wants to be cherished. She wants you to know that she is not a, a Nerf soccer ball to be kicked around and yelled at. And treated like, like she's like uh, uh, disposable. She's fine china. She's delicate vase. And you treat her that way. You go gentle with her. I know wives who tell me, when the garage opens, I tense up. Husbands, your wife gets nervous and anxious when she hears the garage, when you come home from work. What is that? We think we put food on the table for her. She doesn't care about the food on the table. She wants you to cherish her heart. She wants to know that she's the most important thing in your eyes. She wants to know that there's no one who consumes her more than you. Food on the table is if that's our duty. Because I have a daughter. I have a daughter. And the thought of someone mistreating my little daughter, I kill her. I kill her. Do all that is good for her. Have compassion on her. Always hasten to do that which will gladden her heart. There's your ancient wisdom for our modern world here, ladies and gentlemen. There's our ancient faith. What the church teaches about marriage is the exact opposite of what the world teaches. The world teaches fight for your rights. The world teaches teach a lesson. The world says, ladies, you don't submit, you fight. The church says the exact opposite. It says submit to God Submit to your husband and trust that God will provide for you. Your choice. It says to husbands, you are stronger than her. But you are not to use that strength to bully and boss her around. You are to use that strength to care for her and to protect her. And not just to protect her body, but to protect her emotions, to protect her heart. And to provide for her and to cherish her. Because her father in heaven, you will stand in front of him and answer to how you treated her. Is that easy to do? Is that mission easy? Is that mission impossible? Last thing, church gives us this mission, gives us these commands, says this is your task. And you, if you understood them properly, you are scared. Say, I don't know if I can do this. And the last thing the church does, the very end, the church brings 
bride and the groom, who are still holding hands, united by the veil. We talked about that last week. Brings them in front of the altar, and they bow down. And they bow, and the priest prays over them. And the priest praying over them, I told you, the priest is the icon of Christ. So there you see the picture of the new trinity, right there. There's the trinity. Remember we said that a new birth, God, man, and woman, there it is right there, in front of the altar of God. And it shows who's submitting to who. Both are submitting to God, in front of the altar of God. And the priest says a final prayer of blessing for the people. And I'm going to read that prayer for you right now. And I wasn't planning on doing this, but I feel like uh, maybe if you're sitting next to your wife or your husband, okay, grab him by the hand. Okay, If you're dating, don't grab him by the hand. Okay. Okay. Don't grab dating. Just marry. Okay? And if you're not sitting next to them, then at least you're taking this seriously. I'm going to pray this for you. Okay, this is what we pray for the bride and the groom Okay, as they go out on this new mission. Last thing we say before we send them off. They're bowing their hearts, bowing their heads, and we say, may God bless both of you as he blessed Noah with his wife when they came out of the ark to start a new life. May he bless you as he blessed Abraham with Sarah, Isaac with Rebekah, and Jacob with Rachel. May the Lord who began his divine miracles at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, may he bless you in your new life. May he bless your house. May he transform things that create division into a means of blessing. May he fill your hearts with spiritual love. That's our Crowns of Glory series. I hope, if nothing else, that I've shown you that marriage is not what the world says. Marriage is a glorious, glorious, glorious thing. It is a mystery from God that begins with a death, that continues with a new birth, and then for that new birth, for that life to grow, okay, we need to understand our roles on the team. Husbands, love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to our husbands as the church does to Christ. I guarantee you, if you follow what God, let me say this way, I guarantee you this first. If you do not follow what God has instructed you to do, you will never find blessing. And if you do follow what God has instructed you to do, and you're patient, you're willing to do your part, and invest, remember the marriage is a box analogy I gave him the first week, and invest in that box, I guarantee you can see the glory that God has ordained for your marriage as well. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. When you and your goodness saw that it is not good for man to be alone, so you gave us like the peace of yourself. You gave us a way to like enter into the mystery of, of you and the mystery of your, your love through marriage. I pray, Lord, that whether we're single or we're married, we would understand what marriage truly is and how marriage is a glorious, a glorious mystery, not something that the world jokes about and laughs about. And I pray that you'd help us to see like our roles not as, as something insignificant or inconsequential, but truly the path to blessing and the path to satisfaction. Pray for every married couple, Lord, who listens to everything I said and says it's just not possible in my marriage. Pray that you would change their hearts, soften their hearts, Lord, and do a great work in them. Pray for those who are preparing for marriage or approaching marriage or even considering marriage, that you'd help them to see what marriage truly is, and that you would help reveal to them the partner that you want for them to spend the rest of their lives with, not in a selfish way, but in a way to glorify you and to live out your love here on this earth. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. The prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.